0: hello everybody it's lenny murphy here with another edition of the green book podcast uh, as always these are incredibly interesting but i think this one may end up being the most interesting so far because today i am joined by regaya tabrizi phd she is the founder and ceo of theory plus practice regaya welcome
1: thank you so much for having me lenny
0: it's already been a pleasure uh, i think it'll be more of one as we uh, as we go forward for our listeners, you know, there's always a before the recording conversation and my mind was already starting to get blown.
1: You've got the stories already.
0: <laughs> now we need to share them. So on that note, let's talk about your background and uh, give us a little bit of your story so our listeners can get centered for where we're going to go in this conversation.
1: Thank you so much. So uh, I started my career in physics and what I was just sharing with Lenny was that I actually got started in a the string theory. But I ended up spending three months calculating an integral in 11 dimensions, and I decided to do something a little bit more practical with my life. And particle physics, experimental particle physics, was more practical. So timing couldn't have been more perfect because CERN and LHC was up and running. So I ended up transferring to particle physics and starting traveling back and forth to Geneva at that point. LHC was just the most fascinating thing that I had I had seen at that point, you know, I do remember seeing the detector for the first time. It is still was open. It was just going to be closed a few months after my first trip to CERN. So it was just fascinating. You know, I was there when we had the first beam, when we had the first collision, we would wake up to 20 terabytes of data. And it wouldn't even occur to me that it is not normal because, you know, it was just I was so young and it was just really early in my career. From there, uh, I ended up uh, switching to economics, and really the main reason is because I was doing a lot of volunteer work, and I got very interested in international development, so the idea was that I would do economics of development and I would go to Africa. But then I fell in love with game theory. So it was one of the most beautiful things that I had seen after the standard model of particle physics. You know, just being able to model why people do what they do the way they do it. But having the ability to actually go to data, to really try to extract insights and information from data to answer those questions was just beyond fascinating to me. So I'm a game theorist, but I'm a weird kind of game theorist because I can go to 20 terabytes of data. And that intersection and frankly, pushing my brain to operate like a physicist, like an economist, end up being you know such a good thing in hindsight. And it's something that definitely is helping with my career right now. After I graduated, I got started in the valley like. I guess a lot of people with technical backgrounds like me, and that was when reality actually hit—that nothing in my education had actually prepared me to talk to normal people. I talk about this, but it really is true because I would say a bunch of gibberish, and you know, I would expect people to understand me, but it really wasn't the case. And so, what I realized was that the communication was one of the biggest things that I was actually missing, and it is really not uncommon in people that come from the kind of backgrounds with come actually at CERN, especially around the time that the detector was up and running, there was this whole thing around black holes, black holes being created, right? So a whole bunch of people were actually getting media training so that we could actually explain that phenomena better and explain why it is not at all going to be a problem. But, you know, being in industry, being around practitioners, but just something that was very new for me. And that was when I really realized I have to figure this out. And theory and practice was my way of figuring it out. The idea was to start a consulting company to really go (laughs) maybe undercover a little bit, ask as many questions as I possibly could ask, but from actual practitioners, from actual business people, from people who are living and breathing the kind of problems that people like me have been trained to solve. But how can we solve the problem if you don't actually know what the questions are and what the real problems are? So that was the beginning of theory and practice. And so we are four years into it right now and I cannot be more grateful for the path and for what we are doing right now.
0: There are so many different places we can go based on that story. Although what jumps out is as usual, one more example of someone who didn't plan on being in the insights industry, you know, not the education, not the background, but yet here we are. But I love it when folks like, like you, have you ever met Andrew Kanya from Remesh?
1: I know of them, but I haven't met them in person.
0: Well, he is also, he's a computational biologist with a physics background somebody that you think well where how did you get here right and
1: yeah. quite a few people on my team uh, are like that you know i really went out of my way to actually find people with mixed backgrounds and one of the reasons behind that was that i just knew the kind of humbling transformation that I went through when I switched from physics to economics you know I remember everybody telling me oh you've done particle physics you'll be great at economics you'll be so it's going to be so easy it was anything but easy because it is such a different way of thinking and it is a very different way of Looking at the world, so so that to me was extremely humbling because I wasn't good at it. I was far from being good at it, but I became good at it, and then I started learning how we can actually how I can use uh, the skills that I've learned in physics to actually become a better economist as well, and vice versa. How being an economist actually makes me a better physicist, as then I can think in systems differently. I can ask different questions. So that kind of combination is really what enables us to. No, there's so much we don't know. The the curiosity that I guess inherent in people that just go after I guess like you know hard sciences or some of these more fundamental things that that curiosity plus the humility is the thing that I look after, like I, I guess look for when I'm hiring right now.
0: So let's talk about that. Well, actually, let's pause for a minute. There's a, a question, but but I want to acknowledge that you recently landed on the Greenbook Future list, and. For anybody who's wondering why we have that list and why we honor those type of folks, well, here is a fantastic example, right? You're kind of the poster child, I think, for why we're doing, uh, have been doing that to showcase people that are approaching the issues that the insights industry tackles from radically different directions and adding more and more value. So one, congratulations. Now, building this business of, of theory and practice I know one of your passionaries has been multidisciplinary teams. And so if I could frame this up, what I hear from from you is the idea of connecting dots, right? Of looking at lots of different information sources and trying to combine those to answer a business question and provide you know good direction. And it sounds like you very purposefully have gone through developing your team with that same mindset of having lots of different backgrounds that are focused on understanding the dots and connecting the dots. So tell me about some of those profiles that you're looking at. What does that multidisciplinary team look like for you?
1: You know, let me take it a step back and just ground it in what you were just talking about in terms of connecting dots and why that is important. The reason that is important is because we are sitting at an edge of innovation, we are sitting at an edge of creativity. A lot of people talk about innovation and creativity and everybody, I haven't at least come across a single person saying, we don't want innovation in our organizations or we don't want to have creative people. But I think the piece that we are a little bit missing is that we don't quite know what it actually takes to create environments that are conducive to innovation and conducive to creative mind truly being able to succeed and create value, right? I was talking with one of my mentors a few weeks ago, and he said something quite brilliant to me. He said, you know, be really careful. You have to always add talent at the margins, but be very careful in bringing people who are extremely advanced in subject matter experts, as in that there would be nobody to challenge them. If you have experts that they are not getting challenged, it is quite dangerous, especially if you're you're after innovation. So then the challenge becomes, how do you constantly add talent at margin? And yet you're really careful for not ending up in a situation that people are not being questioned. So that feedback culture. So then if we want to backward engineer that problem, well, if I have a bunch of people that all have come from the same discipline, even if it is a very advanced discipline, they're not necessarily gonna be able to challenge each other at the margin because the odds are they're gonna more agree with each other as opposed to disagree. Why is that? Because by definition, each one of us who grew up in these sort of disciplines, by definition, we believe what we do is the best thing, is a better thing to do. Because if I thought there is a better, things to do, then what I'm doing, I would go do that better thing, right? So then that becomes a problem, especially when it comes to the communication uh, part of it, because let's say you come from philosophy. I don't know what, what you actually
0: is. is that was like, my, I had a philosophy degree, so. <laughs> oh, cool,
1: <Okay. laughs> that was just a guess. Uh, it's one of the <laughs> topics. Anyways, let's say you're coming from philosophy and I'm coming from economics or I'm coming from physics, just like whichever one of those angles you want to look at it. The simple fact of it is that even if we are talking about one of the most fascinating subject at the back of my mind, I think I'm better. I think I'm right because I have done this superior, more superior thing. So by definition, I'm not listening. If I'm not listening, how am I actually going to properly respond or properly challenge? right? So you just kind of come to the crux of it, that why it is so incredibly important to have multidisciplinary teams because they would get to challenge each other. But then it doesn't necessarily mean having a multidisciplinary team is going to lead to that feedback open feedback environment that that innovation and challenging environment because if people are actually not listening actually not communicating so how do you create that environment and for me it was like well go after people who have been humbled a little bit through going through the experience such as the experience I went through right as in no you really need to listen you really need to understand the other person even if it is going to come at the cost of pausing your assumptions, pausing your perceptions, pausing whatever needs to be paused, so that you can actually be present with that person. And then, when you have a few people who have similar experiences like that, even if we are all triple A whole AAA personality and we are so committed to what we think is the right thing, the odds are we are all going to pause and we are going to listen. And that intersection—that's where magic happens to me.
0: So I think that you should run for president. <laughs> Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> because, boy, the world needs a hell of a lot more of that mindset right now. Now, that's a whole other issue we won't get, we won't get into, but, Lenny, but I agree. I'll give you
1: a very uh, small example, very short story. This happened a few years ago. One of my friends invited me to talk to their multidisciplinary program at the University of Virginia. It's called Biodiversity Institute, and it's fantastic. So it's a summer program. They have master students from math, physics, computer science, sociology, economics, psychology, like there are all of these students from all these different places come together for one summer and they are studying together, working together on very particular things. So here I am at that point, I think the company was two years old, but the team was very diverse and I was making a joke. I'm like, yeah, you know, it can be interesting to sit in some of the conversations that we have because you get to see an economist with a physicist with a computer scientist and they're like, oh, what the hell you're talking about? But hey, something happens in that process. That is definitely better than the individual perspective and opinions. One of the girls, she raised her hand and she said, well, how do you solve the communication problem? And it was an interesting question to me because I never framed it as a problem. So I asked her, I was like, why do you think it's a problem? She was like, well, you know, it's just like hard to communicate to somebody with somebody that's coming from a different thing. And I was like, let's break it down. Communication has two parts, right? Speaking and telling your perspective. And then also the listening part. Which part do you think is the problem? Is it that you can get better at saying what you're saying in maybe easier words? And yes, sure, definitely. But what about the listening part? And that was where it really opened up that by definition, we don't listen because we think what we're doing is better. So if you actually want to solve the problem, that's the part that really needs to be worked on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My, I think my default position going in is that, one, everybody is of goodwill and has a common vision for ultimate outcomes, right? A positive outcome. Now, how we get there, thats that can be radically different depending upon you know, who we're, we're, we're talking to. But that starting base that we're all on the same side, right? There's no ego in trying to win points in this, right? We're all working towards a common core outcome. Now let's just figure out how do we connect the dots and think about contributing towards that common outcome. It's something that's re- really challenging. And I, I I can be asking Emily, our producer who's listening, I mean, I can dig in my heels, but I'm the <laughs> expert as well as anybody else. and. Yeah at least I guess it comes with age, a little bit of humility coming right. through of like, well, my area of expertise is very myopic, right? I may see this and believe this is true, but it doesn't have anything to do with this. And when I can experience that humility and to stop and think, well, and I think part of that is empathy. And maybe that's the core of the listening piece is having the ability to actually put yourself in the other person's shoes and, and, and try and understand.
1: And I think there is another piece to that as well. So part of it is the ability to really come out of your own perspective and mind, really listen, really pay attention. But then the other part of it, which I think is essential to the process of innovation and creativity, is having the permission to fully be yourself and fully present the ideas that you actually believe are uh, right ideas and at the same time be open. Like. We have these sessions okay you're gonna laugh at this but the title of the sessions are kill sessions so we've got kill sessions in the company and in the kill session you have permission as a matter of fact it is required for you to be in the most negative mindset as you possibly can because the idea is to kill an idea so, you know, let's say I come to a room and I say, hey guys, have got a brilliant idea. I think we really should do this. And that's exactly the moment I look at, look around the room and I'm like, you, 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 I need a kill session. So we get into a room and I just present the idea and their job, they only got one job, find every possible hole, every possible thing that I haven't thought about, every possible whatever, just like, you know, problems with that particular things. And just like, they're supposed to dig their hells in they're supposed to just tell me why it is not a good idea. And then at the end of it, when we look at the board and there's just about 20 negative and maybe one or two positive things associated with my idea, then the job becomes is like, how many of these can we actually solve? How many dots can we actually connect? And we go through these skill sessions, even with the clients, you know, when we are presenting an idea or when they're asking us, oh, we really want to do X, well, why do you think it's a good idea? You should see the look on a CEO's face when I ask them this question of like, you know, here it is, they're sitting in front of their team or somebody from C-suite that their team is also present and the CEO or the CIO or the CMO, whoever they are, they would just say, hey, we really need this. And I'm like, why? Why do we think it's a good idea? And in a safer space, it has to, the space has to be safe so that, again, you don't feel like you're being questioned, but it's just a permission to really try to understand what are all the possible challenges and all the possible risks, because the odds are, if we manage to address 60, 70% of those problems, we are gonna be on track because data is always gonna surprise us, the journey is always gonna surprise us, and we are creative, because we have created an environment that is conducive to creativity and to that creativity turning into impact. And then that's, that's why we end up working on, quote unquote, mission impossible problems, on problems that either take somebody else such a long time to do, or, or that they never even thought it is possible to actually solve that problem. But not only it is possible to solve, and it's always with that collaboration, internal, external collaboration.
0: That's amazing. Two questions that kind to mind. The first one, a little more pragmatic. So you mentioned the problems. Give us a sense of the type of business issues that you tackle and the process that you use in tackling them.
1: We work with customer-centric industries, finance, retail, insurance even. But, you know, let's think finance and retail. Let me give you a, a finance example. Let's say I, as an individual, as a consumer, I go to a bank and I'm asking for a credit card. What ends up happening? I am presented with a series of options. Here's a card with no fee. Here's a card with this kind of points. Here's a card with like whatever. So there is a menu of options in front of me. I sit there and being a behavioral economist, uh, choice fatigue, and I'm like, seriously, why is it that you're literally creating this, uh, this burden, frankly, for me to just, you know, I don't have full information. I don't quite understand all the complexities and all the consequences of the choices that I'm gonna make. And the odds are I'm going to make a suboptimal choice. Here's the future state, or here's actually what we help our clients do, for example. I come to a bank. I ask for a credit card. I've been with this bank for 10 years. You have all the transactional data. You have all the saving data. You know all of my habits. You have all of my past credit card information. You know my wealth management, kind of whatever I'm doing on, uh, on my investment side of things. What would it look like? knowing who I am truly as a person to put the right product in front of me. That you're like, hey, fantastic. We think this is the best card for you or here's two options for you or here's three options maximum for you. Here's each one of features that come with those two or three options. Pick one. Wouldn't that be a moment of delight? So sometimes I joke, but it really isn't a joke. Like I'm in a customer delight business. I'm in a customer experience business. As in, what would it look like to use the data in order to create something that is so actionable and so tangible, it contributes to the top line of the business as well as the bottom line. Because imagine the efficiency that you can create, right? And the operational efficiency. And there are a lot of similar examples in retail as well.
0: We're going to pause for a second to thank our episode sponsor, Zappy. Zappy is the agile platform designed for creators. If you're part of a team that creates brands, ads, or innovative new products, and that includes insights, then you're a creator. With Zappy, you get access to actionable, quick, and smart data for creators to amplify your creatives' effectiveness and shape winning innovation. Inspire your ideas and validate your creation so you can create something people love. Now, on a personal note, I have known Zappy since they were just a sparkle in the eye of the founder, Steve Phillips. Uh, They have gone from being just that idea to being one of the industry leaders in the world and of our our industry. And I am particularly grateful for their contribution to this podcast and for uh, being just great examples of innovation in the research space so check them out thanks now we talked about you described yourself as being focused on game theory and we were even joking before we started on you know maybe we need to create quantum game theory although as we're discussing i mean that's not nearly as silly as it sounds right i mean it really is around the interconnectedness of things
1: we should create that field yes
0: let's talk afterwards here we go so talk about the application of game theory within the business and how you help your clients from that standpoint as well
1: i love this question and let me play with a word that you use interconnectedness what is the problem right now any executive that i talk with everybody's like we have so much data we don't know what to do with where to even start from how to actually identify what is the right data sets? Every single organization that is we are working with, they are going through a major transformation exercise. And, you know, we are talking five years, hundreds of millions of dollars to get their data to a place that it can actually be useful. But then I sit back and I'm like, five years from now, hmm, at the speed that technology is changing, whatever you did and whatever you're doing is going to be old five years from now. And then you're telling me that you're going to wait five years in order to answer actual questions. So how about we actually flip the whole thing on its head, instead of you starting with the data, what if there was a way of starting with universe of questions, as in what are some of the things, what is the to what end of data? What are some of the things that we are trying to address, problems that we are trying to solve? There is this notion that there is, it's not just a notion, it's a reality. Data is very siloed inside the organization. It's the bigger the organization, the more silos you see. We understand why that happens, but there is a bigger silo that people actually don't necessarily talk or even realize that they are dealing with that bigger problem. And that siloed mentality toward use cases, as in how many times somebody comes and says, I really need to understand my customers. Can you help us with a segmentation exercise? I really need to build a fraud algorithm. I really need to build a recommendation system to put the right product in front of the customer. Or can you build us a price sensitivity model? Every single one of them are thinking about this is one problem that I have to solve right now. Wait a second. Let's take a step back. The same data that is going to be used to do a segmentation exercise is the same data that you're going to use for your price sensitivity or understanding promotion affinity of every customer. And it's exactly the same data that you would use to build a recommendation system. So it's a side mentality towards use cases. But What is more required is to understand the interconnectedness of this ecosystem and then build a prioritization map. And that prioritization map has to take feasibility into account, which then connects us back to the universe of data. So we've developed this language, but there is a methodology behind it, to use this way of thinking about questions, which is informed by game theory, which is informed by how we are going to connect some of these dots together to build minimum viable data. So we use these questions and the way that we prioritize the connection between some of these, as in, if I start with, let me just give you a counterintuitive example. Somebody asked us to build a recommendation system. Our counterproposal proposal to them was how about a risk model. And it was in the context of retail they were like, why do I need a risk model? I was like, how are you gonna use a recommendation system? Oh, it's obvious, I'm gonna put it in front of the customer and you know, they put a product in their basket and I'm gonna suggest a different product to them. Well, how do you know that that recommendation didn't piss them off? How, did you, how do you know that that recommendation is actually the right thing for them to do? Do you actually know if that recommendation increases the probability of that session, let's say online session, converting to a purchase or not? What if I build you a risk model that actually identifies in the first two, three minutes of a session, if that session going to convert into a purchase, and if not, what are the reasons behind it? Because then maybe something that you can do with it is to use a recommendation system. Maybe you want to Throw in a promotion in there, but very targeted, very specific. Maybe you want to play around with the discount because sure, let's say you can not change the pricing, but you can always play around with the discount. Maybe you want to use that opportunity to bring somebody back to the site to increase the conversions and increase the retention and all those sort of things. If you know why something is happening or not happening, you can actually come up with better interventions, right? The three examples of interventions that I gave you are three different models. But the data to build those models is exactly the same thing, hence the minimum viable data. What is the minimum viable data that is going to help me answer as many questions, especially interconnected questions, as I possibly can?
0: So listeners, you're being spared watching me nod my head vigorously through this entire conversation. I think my neck's starting to hurt um, so much. (laughs) Again, we could go on for hours on on that topic as well. I, I could not agree more. So, you know, I used to look at the inspiration for the movie Minority Report. Now that's a very dystopian movie, but the idea, it always struck me if you, you movie the this scene of Tom Cruise walking through the mall and there's all the personalized recommendations. And I still think in theory, the idea of having a data lake that can be fit for purpose based upon the business issue and have a very personalized experience. I always think of the Mark Pritchard from P&G saying that their goal is to have a one-on-one one-on-one relationship with every person on the planet in real time. How do you do that? That's driven by, by data. And underneath that would be a variety of very individualized experiences that theoretically can help make your life better. Now, the flip side of that, and I think it gets into the more of the dystopian idea as well, and and I'll get to the point through here, is now, I think so many consumers have had such a bad experience on those poor recommendations so the ads that you know pop up in your social feed or even the recommendations that happen on amazon or whatever your your product is i see how they get there but boy sometimes they are just really incredibly mismatched based upon what i'm looking for at that time and programmatic advertising in general uh, i think has failed incredibly badly in doing that so now we have a backlash that can limit it creates another silo around the data, which is an issue of data privacy. And we need to thread the needle on that one too. So, when dealing with your clients, and you said you're very customer centric, customer centricity earlier, is that part of what you're talking to them about is saying, look, you keep doing what you've been doing and it's starting to piss people off. And there's broader social trends that are occurring as well, right? There's a huge chunk of the population that is utterly disengaged from traditional social media, the internet commerce as a whole for a variety of reasons. And we don't need to get into value judgments on that. It just is what it is. So we are compounding our problems, in my view, of being able to get to that, to become more customer centric and deliver greater value and greater empathy and connection with customers utilizing data because we've done it so poorly. Do you see with your customers, one, does that conversation occur? And is there an inflection point or a process to be able to try and reverse that trend that you're helping customers try and look at and see?
1: Absolutely. You know, nobody, at least none of our clients, anybody that we talk with, uh, wakes up in the morning and uh, decides that today I'm going to create a really bad experience for my end customer. Nobody wakes up with that thought in their head, right? The intention is always to go really, really try hard to understand the customer to be able to create so that they can do something with that information and create a better experience because it impacts top line, it impacts bottom line most important, it is good for the customer as well. But it's not quite about the intention. It's about the execution of those strategies. And unless we start really realizing the siloed mentality that we have and start bringing things together, connecting them, understanding the connection, upskilling and training the internal teams to also start not only to think in this particular way, but also think about how they are using data in order to move there. So there are quite a few different angles. Like Lenny, it's it's such a complex problem, frankly. And that's the piece that I think actually my physics training is uh, coming to play a little bit more because oftentimes the question becomes a process of change management. It's not about, you know, a lot of people, especially uh, internal teams, when it comes to use of AI and automating things, stuff like that. Of course, there's always question around trust. There's always questions around privacy and how we're using each one of these things. And then there is an undertone of like, am I going to lose my job? Am I eventually like, you know, there's always a little bit of that as well. And to me, the question, the answer is actually such an obvious no, because the whole point of it is To never ever get rid of the human in this process because well boy that's going to be a problem but more so the point is to create augmentation to create enhancement if i give you information and if i help you interpret those information in a way that helps you make better decisions are you going to tell me no because I don't think anybody would ever say, no, I don't want better information so that I can be more effective at what is it that I'm, whatever it is that I'm doing. And that to me is the true purpose of AI. And sure, there's a whole bunch of things that are inefficient that can become more efficient. Let's create those efficiencies as well. But back to your question in terms of like, How organizations are thinking and are they open and receptive to this way of thinking? I would say absolutely yes, especially at the senior management. Everybody's thinking, you know, what can I do? It's an asset. You know, if you're a CEO or c C-suite in an organization, your job is to think about how best and strategically you can use the assets at your disposal. Data is a very important asset, but the execution is absolutely essential. And that's the piece that I see go wrong oftentimes.
0: So I want to be conscious of time. Because I think you and I can go on for a very long time (laughs) with this conversation. But I'll tell you, I want you to come back. So please, because this this really is fascinating because it's and I've played with the idea in my own head and I'm not a physicist by a imagination, but I know enough to be dangerous. I do think we live in a quantum universe. I believe that the implications of that in terms of interconnectivity and information flows and and everything is just really pretty mind boggling. And. You're the first person I've spoken to who's who's applying that in a very pragmatic way in the world of behavior of human behavior. And that is just incredibly fascinating. Okay. So there's my, my additional praise, but it really is very cool. Where do you see the business going from here? Obviously you're, you're getting good traction. You're talking to folks you're You're making an impact what's next for, for you and for the business.
1: You know in all honesty very incredibly humbled it's a for the company actually just turned four years old but we've had the privilege of working with fortune 100 companies all along and that's why it's been an incredibly humbling pass. because you know we would sit and it's like oh here's a great idea and here's a great model and we've already went for a kill session and you know all of those are good things right but then you bring it to the table and Even if you start like, you know, working on it, you suddenly start saying, okay, but I have to take care of this other thing. And there is this other organizational challenge that exists as well. So it's been incredible to see the challenges that exist, to not give up and to just know that we can still go after something that truly makes a difference and creates impact. And being able to do that in reality, I joke about it that is just like I know anything it can potentially break inside an enterprise. And that's that's a key for us. Like, you know, can you actually it's not about building models. Building models is the easiest part of it, frankly. But like, do you know what is going to break and how you are going to break it before it breaks so that when it gets to production and when it scales up, doesn't break and doesn't create uh, the challenges? You have to build capacity. You have to build space for things like that to to happen. And you have to build capacity for experimentation for and to be able to work with partners and organizations that are that open minded. To experimentation, to trying different things. But every single one of us, I think at the same time, are also very risk averse, as in, we are conservative. It better work. Yeah. It better work because this is not just a curiosity driven research. So, what's next for the company? This interconnectedness of use cases and the ecosystem that we are talking about. We have been. Building so many models in these real environments that you know, over the last year and a half, we've actually been packaging a lot of these uh, models because before it was more like um, I guess traditional consulting approach. Let's talk about the questions problems we are going to challenge you you are going to challenge us we are eventually going to find the right problem and right question to start from etc but uh, over the last few years we've we've got a point of view we've seen a lot of problems and we've seen a lot of best practices and we've created solutions that actually work and scale so what would it look like to package it and actually bring it to the client so that we can expedite their time to market their speed to customers and, you know, the services that they can provide. So I would say we are on a productization path of our services in order to just be able to increase the efficiencies and play around with a whole bunch of other cool things.
0: That is very, very cool. I can imagine where that can go or at least get a glimpse of it. So that is very exciting.
1: You know, one of the things that is really fun about this, because I think, again, our approach toward trading products are also different from what typically exists in a market. You know, when you're going after building a product, well, if you're lucky, you're gonna have some client partners or some potential industry partners that you can actually do a proper opportunity mapping, proper exercise of understanding the pain points, understand the market, et cetera. For us that happened in the context of consulting. Like we dealt with very real problems, very real questions, very real feasibility issues that we had to overcome, right? But now it's just really about bottling up that magic and being able to put it in front of the client in a way that helps them ask better questions. If this product does nothing but helps them to ask better questions, as in provides enough actionable insights and feedback about the customers, back to the clients, back to the stakeholders, I would say that's success.
0: Absolutely. And that's the classic problem for service-based organizations, right? How do you scale your IP aligned to market need? And obviously, many companies have done that over the years. You look at the big consulting companies, right? McKinsey, for example, I mean, there's the McKinsey way. Now, we could argue whether it's really their way or not. But, you know, folks think of it that way. It's their IP. And although inherently, they still haven't, just for example, in my opinion, They haven't cracked the scale issue. They've just added more people. You know, you just throw a buttload of people at it, and that's how you address the scale, not through technology, not through true productization. But I see companies like you that are going down that path, and that's that's an incredibly cool thing. All right, again, (laughs) you keep pressing my geek button, and (laughs) uh, and I I just want to go on and on, but but I know you've got a hard stop. So you mentioned you were talking to one of your mentors earlier. Where are you finding inspiration? today? Where do you turn for, oh, wow, that's a really cool thing. And that makes me really think about things in a different way.
1: Honest answer, my team. They are so cool. They're so awesome. The way they think, the way they come up with ideas, the way we have practiced this way of being really open. So like yesterday I was talking about one of our clients with a team and we are, we are getting into a planning session with them. And just within 15 minutes, three four different ideas came up and i was like oh this is just so fascinating this is really cool so for me i get a lot of inspirations from the team and i put that back in front of the clients we tested you know this this whole idea of like testing ideas and killing ideas and experimentation so i'm really lucky to have a team that is this dynamic But then the other side of it is, again, I I feel so lucky I have access to such rich group of mentors and advisors and teachers. If I have any questions about, you know, different aspects of business, there's usually two or three people that I can go ask. And they are so generous with their times as, you know, most of these great people are. to to listen to a bunch of gibberish that I'm going to say, and I'm just going to think, oh, wow, I'm dealing with such a complex problem. And within two minutes, they're going to laugh at me and they're going to solve my problem for me, right? Or at least they're going to ask me some good questions. So my mentors, my advisors, they definitely push me. They challenge me. And then my team is just a dynamic source of ideas.
0: Then on that note, the folks that you go to, is there anybody that you would recommend that we reach out to to be a guest on the podcast?
1: Oh, how much time you got (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> right but yes, you know, there are three people that I would highly recommend that you guys reach out to. Uh, one of them, his name is Nitin Rakesh. He's the CEO of Emphasis, one of the most brilliant people that I know, just the way he thinks. You know, you were talking about connecting dots, seeing around the corners. Like that's the piece that just fascinates me about him. Tony is the CEO of uh, Allianz Benalox. He was uh, the mentor that I was telling you. He was telling me about really think carefully about adding talent at the margin. He's so articulate and he's just such a global thinker that, you know, it's just, it's really incredible to, to have access to to him. Another person who was also, or I guess, is a founder, he grew his company over the last 34 years to be a several billion dollar company. His name is Don Berman and uh, uh, just culture. It's all about people for him. So, you know, it's just like, it's so inspiring for me to see how over last 35 years, he's held on to the core of his company and the culture of his company is beautiful. So those are just three people off the top of my head.
0: Duly noted. So, regard this has been fantastic. Love this conversation. Hope that we have more. Where can people reach you?
1: Find me on LinkedIn. My email and stuff, I think, is in the website. It's public. Like, definitely reach out to us uh, over the, on LinkedIn and from our website. I think that's the easiest one.
0: Thank you so much for the time. Listeners, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, I hope this has been as interesting of a conversation for you as it was for me. And, Raga, I hope it was an interesting conversation for you as well.
1: Thank you so much, Lenny. These conversations are always inspiring because it helps me remember the core of what we are doing and why we're doing it. So thank you for that.
0: You're welcome. (laughs) All right, the Love Fest will end now before we go even further. But thank you for the time, uh, everybody. And we'll see you in the next podcast. Bye now.